So when you're a security organization who is not only having to build out technology-related capabilities and services around the globe, but is also having to influence other business partners and other business functions, the situation you get into isn't that you're just playing politics. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Curtis Simpson, CISO of Armis. Curtis and I talk about the pros and cons of starting your career in small versus large organizations, influencing and informing other business partners from a security perspective, and why he believes the CISO shouldn't report to the CIO. How can you as a leader exert influence without it being perceived as playing politics while improving security and not merely completing tasks as a means of measuring success? Okay, uh, Curtis, if you would please, for the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. You bet, Steve. I am Curtis Simpson, and I am the CISO at Armis. Curtis, what did you do before then? Prior to joining Armis about a year and a half ago, I was global CISO at Cisco Foods for about 10 years. Um, I was responsible for fundamentally taking their program from a compliance-oriented program to a true security-oriented program, building the team capabilities and that global overarching program for the organization. Just a quick note on that. What do you think was the turning point of going from a more compliance-driven org to uh, one that's a little more than that? I I only ask because I know there's many listeners that have one and are struggling to build the other. What was the trigger? What was the catalyst there? I think the catalyst was a couple different things. One, auditors and assessors really starting to push harder around those security-based capabilities, but also newsworthy-based attacks or newsworthy attacks and attacks against other organizations within either the same industry or parallel industries. And then those leaders or practitioners from those industries circling back with leaders at Cisco and and relaying some of those horror stories, often some of the most powerful opportunities to drive change, right, is to have leaders or our leaders, peers or friends or trusted advisors actually be the ones to advise them of the need to change. And that was very much the case at Cisco. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's always a new and exciting idea when someone outside of the company recommends it versus someone internally saying this would be a good idea. Things often move faster in that by that method rather than folks struggling internally. If you have somebody outside saying it's a good idea, things typically move. You get the cooperation. Yeah. And quite honestly, if it's highly controversial. That was often what I would do early because it was likely to clear any barricades or blockers that were there um, faster. We had an earlier chat kind of prepping for the show. And one of the things I like to ask is advice for what, what you would, what you would, would have recommended to yourself earlier in your career. And, and I think that's an important thing. You know, you've been doing this a while, but not so long. Uh, yeah, it's still been a fairly recent journey, I think, uh, for you. I think we're, you might even be a little younger than I am. Not an accomplishment, but just in, in age in general. But you had a really kind of direct and a, and a quite nice response when I asked about 
advice, and that was stay close to what what you enjoy. Help me understand that, uh, and and why why did you feel like that was important to share? Yeah, and thanks for that, Steve. And I've, I've thought about that even since we talked about it. And I've got something to add to that as well. But the reality is, is I love tech. I was born with a keyboard in my hand, is something I like to say. It was probably about I was probably about six years old when I was actively getting into PCs. And my father was in IT from the dawn of IT. So again, I had a computer. I had a PC from the moment you could have a PC in a home. So from about six years old, I started playing games. When I was about eight years old, I was already coding and basic. By about 11 or 12 years old, I was already performing fundamentally gray hat activities through IRC and learning what wares groups were and what they were doing and how they were doing all of those different things. And then constantly learning about every piece of tech as it evolved and just being infatuated with it. Now, as I continued to evolve through the technical landscape, security was always the most interesting element of what I was observing and learning. And again, I was exposed to that in early days through wares groups and wares groups were groups that obtained software through illegal means in most cases, cracked that software, posted it online. And in many cases were some of the ones introducing malware to the masses in early days. So learned a lot, experienced a lot, saw a lot, and again, was absolutely obsessed with it. Now, fast forward to when I started my career and I started my career in massive organizations. And I'm not going to lie, that is one of, as I look back, that is one of the mistakes, and I will we'll say mistake that I made, and it's not that I haven't been successful or otherwise, but what that move caused me to do is to continuously gravitate away from what I enjoyed. Not what I'm good at, but what I enjoy, right? I am good at being a politician. I am good at building and leading teams, though I do enjoy doing that. What I didn't realize, though, venturing into massive enterprise organizations is what I was going to face. I wrote every job description that I've ever had in security in massive organizations. I've had to explain to every leader who I am, why I do what I do, why the team needs to exist, why the team does what they do, and to constantly fight for every morsel of progress. And what I didn't realize and what I know now as I look back at my career is I had continuously evolved from being a technologist who admittedly very much understands and enjoys business and likes to connect the two things, which is more at the root of why I've been successful. But what I didn't realize is that I had fundamentally become a politician and that Almost all of my time was being spent playing politics and very little of my time was being spent in the tech, which is why in more recent years before making changes into my current role, I spent a lot of time in the community. So there's a, a lot that was said there that I think is important to review. The first would be, I'm sure there's people listening that say, but a, someone in leadership with an information security or a CISO that's their job. Their job is, with many other officer positions, is to politic, is to is to influence, is to take their hands off of a keyboard or a piece of technology and to lead and build teams and, you know, make verbal and visual justifications. And it's a complete um, removal from the tech. 
So what do you say to the person that's, that would say, hey, you got what you signed up for? Like what, what was, how did you get ahead of that? And why, why didn't you, what clouded your judgment on that? Because you certainly had to have seen that. Oh, I absolutely saw it. And it's more, it's more so, again, about the ratio of time being spent, right? So uh, there's a couple things I'll add there. And when I say these things, what I've also experienced is very different experiences within smaller organizations. So massive organizations, especially those that have been around for decades, understand their core functions. They know what finance does. They understand why finance needs to exist. They generally understand the strategic goals of finance. And then you can relate that to typical functions that directly support the line of business. What you get into in massive organizations, though, in many cases are, are teams that are not aligned to common outcomes. So you already have these large organizations that the company generally understands that are allowed to act autonomously, that are rarely connected to common outcomes that other teams can rise up against, can support, can help fulfill, etc. So when you're a security organization who is not only having to build out technology-related capabilities and services around the globe, but is also having to influence other business partners and other business functions, the situation that you get into isn't that you're just playing politics, but where in other cases, a business function that's well understood and, and commonly consumed and core to the business is making maybe one or two arguments and doing all of the things you just said and being able to move forward, the effort being put forward by a security team. And again, a lot of this is because I, my career grew up through the time when no one really understood security or that value. So much of my time was spent educating everyone on why I'm even talking to them in the first place. Then pulling in five different partners across five different functions to influence someone that is untouchable because they're friends with senior executives and board members. And there's so many people, or there's so many steps removed that trying to interact with anyone else in another capacity to affect someone that's more of a personnel issue than otherwise is going to be a challenge. So there were many cases where you would look at something that finance may put in front of leaders or others and have that reviewed and approved within 30 minutes and signed off on, I might spend three months going through a similar engagement that should have been just as easy. But again, it's a less understood function. There's less desire to help fill this function. And one of the most interesting things that I noticed was, in many cases, the core to the challenges that I was facing day in and day out were around how leaders and people were bonused. Very rarely is anyone in the, in the massive enterprise bonused for improving security. They're bonused for achieving specific outcomes. So when you're running at certain situations where someone needs to, to migrate from an on-prem HR solution into Workday within the next year, and in the early phase of the project, you talk about all of the specific security capabilities that need to be introduced and how we're going to not only advance business processes, but bring them into more modern, more secure processes that are also compliant. In many cases, what ends up happening with those projects is nine months into that one-year project, the security elements are not yet done. The project is incredibly late and the security elements are going to be the first punted because that function is not being bonus based on security. Much of the challenge that I'm talking to isn't about the fact that I did or didn't know that I was going to have to play politics. It was to the level at which I was going to have to play politician 
And the ability to balance an understanding of the market and an understanding of the of the enterprise to me is an important aspect of the role. It's not about spending 99% of your time forming relationships to have minor decisions made. It's about spending a lot of your time doing that, but then also spending a lot of your time being a servant leader for your teams and actually learning about how the market's evolving, what matters, what doesn't, what risks you should be considering, et cetera. And staying on top of that ends up becoming a part-time job on top of the politics within the enterprise gig versus if I would have focused on growing my early career, especially within smaller, more mid-sized organizations that were more team-oriented, driving towards common outcomes because they're hungry and that they, all, they know they all need to work together to achieve those successes. So how did you fall into the trap of this? For the person listening that maybe they, they're falling, maybe they're in this situation. Maybe they really enjoy the tech, but they found themselves, maybe they're the CISO, maybe they're the CISO at a small or medium, or maybe, maybe in a, a big company, and they really just want to work on the tech. But what do you think is the, the thing that traps these individuals into taking that bigger job that then removes them from what they enjoy? And how do you, how do you get away from that? How do you then decide... You know, because there's many people also that maybe they've had the CISO moniker and they don't want to drop that. So what advice do you have to the person that's sort of stuck in a similar spot? Yeah, no, great questions. So a couple of things. And just to clarify, too, it's not for me, even especially in this day and age, it's not just about the tech. It's about solving problems. Right. And, and, and for me, what I want to do is spend more time solving problems and less time trying to corral resources and solving those problems. And that's the joy and that's the fulfillment. And I think many of us in, C in the CISO role actually get the enjoyment and the fulfillment from solving those problems, from managing that risk, from truly preventing those outages, that downtime, et cetera. And I think there's a couple of things that happen, right? I Early in my career, admittedly, I was too title hungry. I was too worried about a, a title that said this, that was going to be a company of this size. None of that matters. None of it matters. What I would sooner suggest is that if your focus is more so on the tech or even more specifically on solving problems, and that's the enjoyment that you get, I go back to it makes a lot more sense to start your career in smaller organizations, grow your career, grow those titles. You're more likely to achieve those titles within small organizations, which you can then use to pivot into the larger operations. So I should also clarify that when I, I'm not saying that no one should be a CISO of a major enterprise, not by any means. What I'm sooner saying is I would not grow my career in a larger enterprise because of all of the challenges you're going to face based upon the sheer size of that organization more than anything else. And I think a lot of the trap is you see the carrot. And I'm not going to lie, in many cases in my career, the carrot was being dangled in front of me, though it was never going to be given to me. Or it was, it, I was going to have to go through a lot more trials and tribulations than others in similar roles were going to have to because those were roles that were well understood, well established, core to the business value, et cetera. We've got to not worry as much about the titles and worry about the accomplishments and how you can use those accomplishments to get either that next title, that next gig, but to continue to follow what we find passion, what we find passion and what we find fulfilling and what we truly enjoy. 
I think that's there's a, a lot of folks that think the path. I mean, I myself worked at, for the most part, larger companies, you know, the last one, a Fortune 30 prior to Exabeam. And your point of, you know, getting things done there, it is often very difficult. I almost said impossible, but it's very difficult to to get to steer that battleship and to make change. Now, sometimes you enjoy that challenge, but it can also burn you out. On the flip side of that, you mentioned that it's often better to start smaller. I think I know why you, know, you explained part of that. Is there any other benefit to, if you're kind of in this, this modus of thinking, to begin your career maybe at a, at a smaller company? And why is that? And then what do you do once you're there? Like give that advice for somebody who's thinking about what direction do I go? Do I aim for a big company or do I go to maybe to a startup or a smaller firm? What's your advice there? Yeah. So I think starting with a small company has so many different benefits. One, it's, I started touching on this already, but the team usually understands what their objectives are. And they're not team or they're not individual objectives. They're team objectives. They're company objectives. Everyone knows what they're running at. A lot of smaller companies with great ideas, great products, great capabilities, et cetera, are again, hungry to really prove themselves in the market, tackle larger competition and do well. And working within those organizations, having done that earlier in my career, what I found was it was just incredibly fulfilling, not just because you were working as a team, everyone understood what they were doing and how they were contributing to those outcomes, but because you had the opportunity to do a lot. There was very little that I wasn't afforded the opportunity to be able to work on and complete. And I mean, it didn't have to be an initiative that was handed to me from above. Sooner, it could be something that I thought was interesting, I thought was valuable, and I would pitch it, and I wouldn't have to pitch it 12 times or to 12 different people. I would pitch it once, everyone would see the value in it, and we'd move forward with it. And if it worked, great. And if it didn't, no big deal. Let's just move on with the next thing. And what you're able to do in that kind of situation is build up a really great resume and build up a ton of confidence. Early in my career and starting in some of those, those roles, it was so helpful from the confidence perspective alone, right? You start realizing, wait, all these things that I've either taught myself or I've been executing in these other capacities, I do know what I'm doing. I'm doing these things well. I, I feel like I can now take on that next challenge. In that model, you're able to really focus on what you want to do, how you want to do it, and what you want to accomplish to go to the next level. You're less focused around about all the different politics that might prevent you from completing those things and then navigating through all those politics and then eventually completing that thing that you were trying to complete. In the meantime, you could have, in that small organization, executed a number of parallel initiatives, felt those successes, gained those those are those learnings applied those things to your resume and then again like i said hopefully take use that as an opportunity to continue to pursue what you are finding most interesting and i would also argue that it gives you the opportunity to continue to find what you do find most interesting because you have a lot more freedom to move in different directions take different actions try different roles even within a given function i've had many opportunities or i i've had many opportunities to give folks chances to do different things within smaller organizations, especially, and really help them, again, figure out what they want to do, what they're really good at, what makes them feel great through that type of function. And that's a lot harder to do within large organizations more often than not. There very much is a lock-in that can occur at a larger company, both 
at the individual contributor and leadership level where you specialize pretty quickly. And if you know your passion, that's okay. If, uh, if you're okay with that working model, that can be a good thing. You know, if you want to be a malware researcher and they have that position, you know, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. To your point, though, I think being able to, to try out many things and really experiment without a lot of um, red tape, I think, is, the, is what I'm hearing. On the flip side, though, if you start small and then go to a big company, I've seen many people become frustrated because they want to just sign right into the system and make the change in the middle of the day. And, and you can't do that. Right? You've got to retrain your mind on that. And so that's been a common source of frustration for many that in, in my past that I've hired that have been at smaller companies. You know, that, so maybe a, a counter, a counterpoint to that. I, I want to transition a little bit. One of my favorite questions to ask just in general conversation, but especially for this show is what pisses you off or what irritates you about this industry? And, and you, you had a lot of thoughts on this. You started off by giving answers around transparency and kind of the, the lack thereof. Expand on that for us, if you would. Why does that? Why, why is why is there? How is there a transparency problem in our industry? Yeah, I think there's there's a number of reasons for it, but we're rarely focused on the right things in the industry because we're rarely honest about what it is we do and don't know. Right. I, I look at so many strategies being executed without awareness as to why those strategies are being executed and what value they're going to provide. And in many cases, those strategies are being executed because someone else is doing it or because we've heard about this thing and it seems to be the way of the future. So we should try using that thing and adopting it for a number of different reasons. And, and maybe it is as we rise up to these political challenges and all these things. I feel like in many cases, we have lost sight of the most important elements that we are responsible for protecting. And then in many cases, we're not transparent about the challenges that we're having in protecting those things. And again, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I found through a lot of my career in those large organizations, because security is misunderstood and all of those things, security is usually the last function to admit that there's something they don't know. And Maybe there's some additional training they need or otherwise security's often seen as this subject matter expert function that has to continue to know these things. And maybe that's a lot of the reason for the transparency gaps. We don't, for the longest time, we were in this situation where unless it was an ISAC, we didn't even want to talk about some of the types of attacks we were seeing in our environment. And to me, that's just crazy, right? I, I think there's Elements of attacks that you want to talk about because they may relate back to things that might have to disclose or to upcoming disclosures. But most of what we see on a regular basis is something that we should be talking about and sharing, whether it's tactics and techniques and everything else. We've definitely gotten better, but we're still so guarded in our general conversations, regardless. When you bring practitioners into a room, it can take quite some time to tear down those guards. And I just don't think we need them as much as we used to anymore, especially not when we're amongst peers, especially not as we're trying to grow our careers, be more successful, etc. I think transparency is king. And I think the more I've been transparent in my role as to what I'm challenging with, what I'm struggling with, what I need, whether that's with peers or with leaders, I've been a lot more successful when I've been transparent. 
And I, I don't think that we can build the effective security programs that we need to and maintain those and deliver the value that we have to and do so in a meaningful way if we're not transparent, honest with ourselves and honest with those that are trying to help us or that are, are responsible for funding our programs, et cetera. So you covered a couple of things there. One is obviously the lack of transparency and this guarded nature, almost a personality type that you can assign to information security if using, if brushing with broad strokes. How did we, why do you think we got to this point? Why are we, let's put it this way, why are we hiring people, security leaders that are not transparent? Uh, is it because they think they shouldn't be or is it because they don't know how to be? I think it's probably a bit of both, to be honest. I think it's a good way of asking it. I know you get into situations where folks are scared about saying anything externally because they know of people having their hands slapped by legal when they said things that maybe were, went a little overboard and maybe some leaders struggle with trying to figure out exactly where that line stands and it's easier to just not share anything as a result. I think there's, there's some of that. Um, so I think that is some of the, how do I share this information? And I do think if that is the question we're asking ourselves, we need to ask it, right? I'm not going to lie. I've asked those questions because it's been confusing to me at times and I wasn't sure sir, exactly what I could say and what I couldn't say and how I could say those things. So I tested it out with legal and I played out some of those scenarios and got my answers and knew where my guardrails were and went from there. I think sometimes maybe some folks are afraid of saying the wrong thing that they could get in trouble for even within those guardrails, because there's this general concern that oversharing may impact brand or something along those lines. I think we've all come to a general consensus, though, that we all have our challenges. We all have to work through those challenges. No one's infallible. We've just got to overcome some of these things. And I do think overcoming it is a matter of talking about it. Like, why are we here? How do we improve this? And some of it is literally just talking about it with our leaders, with our legal teams, trying to establish those boundaries that make sense to us so we can be better at this. I do think, to your point, it's been a cultural thing for a long time. It's less about the fact that we're hiring security leaders that are this way, more about the fact that it's just been a cultural norm for so long. And we've just got to continue to disrupt it, every single one of us, to make it go away. There's a theme you know, doing, we're, we're almost into 40 shows now. Uh, I've been able to speak in the last three and a half years with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of security leaders, and CISOs, and, and did a fair amount of it before joining Exabeam as well. There's kind of a, a couple of tells in this space. At an individual level, if someone's in security leadership, if they're the type of person that's not willing to say, I don't know, that's a really bad sign. That's a really low transparency individual, typically. And if you want to see a sort of a, a poisoned or a poor program, have one that gives answers to things when they should really just say, no, we don't have a control for that, or we'd lack that capability. If they are more inclined to make up a bunch of BS about something to appease an auditor or a compliance person or a lawyer, those two things are sort of signs of low security EQ, in my opinion. And it gets back into this transparency and this sort of old culture of, of security. Now, this is my opinion. Not everyone may agree to that. But what's your take on what I just shared? 
I do agree a hundred percent. I think it's insidious. I do think that that is a sign of a leader that if nothing else needs some coaching as to how to effectively report that status in a transparent way. And I think if, if nothing else, we, many of us are aware of this, but those that aren't should be. Our programs become a lot more effective through the transparency. And without that transparency, my general concern is it's going to blow up in our face eventually. And I would much rather tell someone now this situation is bad and that we need to act and here's what we need to do to act versus pretending it's good and then having it happen to me and now having to support that situation. That is a far worse scenario, but I agree with you 100%. That is the sign at least of a leader that needs coaching. And yeah, if, if we are one of those leaders and we have recognized that we are doing that, we need to stop. It's not helping us. It's not helping our career. It's not helping our companies. It's not helping anyone. So if anyone is still doing that just because of the old cultural remnants, let's just drop it. It very much is insidious. The other point, I think, on that, what I'm seeing is, is the role of the security leader is becoming much more diverse. And when I say that, I mean from different backgrounds, different career experiences. And I found that those that have come from other sort of non-technical backgrounds have a tendency, not always, have a tendency to seemingly be more collaborative and be more open to sharing than those that, that haven't. Now, we can argue if that's good or bad, but I think it's an interesting observation on this topic in terms of being comfortable sharing what we don't know and having transparency of where we uh, may have concerns and then our ability to sort of share that. One of the concerns I've had in my career is sort of the legacy reporting structure of a CISO to a CIO or similar who have often conflicting goals, or at least some that are at odds. And then the reporting that would go on as information travels up and how it's sanitized. So I think that has been one of my other areas of concern as it relates to the position. I'd like to know what your take is on either how information sanitized as it goes up due to bad reporting uh, and reporting structure itself. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've got a lot of opinions on this topic, but I'll keep them brief. I agree with you 100%, Steve. I think we have long passed the mark where CISOs should not report up through CIOs. Honestly, I think you hit the nail on the head as to that has been one of the most painful elements of my career for a lot of reasons, including that data sanitization that you speak of, because what happens in those cases, in, in many cases, and eventually this often improves itself within an organization as that CISO continues to prove themselves, but in many cases that CISO is representing a message to the CIO that unfortunately doesn't really understand security. Many CIOs have been improving this space vastly over the years, but unfortunately most that I've encountered don't have a ton of experience in this space. So the CISO spends a lot of time creating the message, giving the message to the CIO, educating on the message, and then 
as you said, that message can start to fall apart or actually ends up falling into the category we were just talking about, where the CIO will feel as if they don't want to paint as bleak of a picture, maybe not bleak, but you know what I mean, to the board or other executives. So they'll create a softer image as to what's actually going on and totally diffuse everything that the CISO was trying to do. The other challenge that I've faced and why I think this role just cannot exist within IT is the fact that, heck, I'll take regulators, um, regulatory bodies as an example here. It, I believe it was Germany who added additional elements to GDPR and specifically said that we're introducing these additional controls because HR and IT introduce most of the risks that affect PII within an organization. I say that because it's true, right? And as you look at most of what a CISO and security organization is trying to drive change around within IT are things that others are going to have to do, but may not feel they have to do if they feel they have a stronger relationship with the CIO than the CISO does. And then you get into this whole jockeying for position and political situation that gets a lot messier and you don't have a lot of opportunity to escalate because it's two team members that aren't getting along and then you're calling on mom or dad to try to interject into the situation. It's just painful. But knowing that IT and HR are introducing many of the different risks within our organization that are driving some of the most newsworthy events doesn't make sense for the team that's assessing those functions and guiding those functions on how to avoid those situations to report to those functions. It just puts them in a difficult place at best or slows progress at worst. I agree to that. I've seen it too many times. You know, you you end up having, you can have a, a security problem or even a compliance problem that costs people their bonuses or can cost millions upon millions of dollars in failures or fines or breach costs. And the the ELT, SLT, board, take your pick, any of the three, subcommittee, whatever, have, have never had an audience with a security leader. I've seen this at very big organizations, and all while telling their customers that they take security seriously and even use it as a way to close new business. And so uh, there's no balance on those two sides of the scale. And um, I see it in many organizations. Not as much, but it still happens. And we still have bad reporting structures or maybe inefficient reporting structures is what I'll say. Agreed. And it's, um, you know, the way that information and priorities are set. I think on the flip side, though, too, that the, you know, security teams I'm seeing, they are evolving. More security tools are being put in the hands of the people that create, could create the risk. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a developer, whether that's, you know, people looking at, at you know, many architectures are, are becoming uh, sort of security native. You know, the, that, so the, I'm seeing some things tactically change. Some reporting is changing, which is good. You made a comment I want to go to uh, kind of transitioning a little bit in our earlier chat. And it was when we were talking about people not wanting to talk about negative outcomes and the bad stuff and quotes. And how programs sort of suffer as the result, making silly decisions. But you gave an example where practitioners are spending time trying to buy things that they think are good for their career rather than things that are sort of relevant or 
you know, so tell, tell me a little bit about what is that problem? How is it identified? Because I think that when you start looking at the number of security tools that, that we have in most organizations, on average, I think there's 50. And often you see um, a lot of shelfware, things that aren't fully deployed. And then I heard you make this statement, which seems to add fuel to the fire. Why is this and how do you spot it? Yeah, I don't know that there's one specific reason for this happening, but I do see it happen often. It's a good question. I don't know that I have great answers to it. It's I see it happen relatively often. And it, you get into this situation where someone may feel pressured into doing a certain thing. And that pressure can come from different places, right? There may be a leader that saw a great presentation, went to a great event, and is now pushing something down on the security organization. And they feel that they've got to adapt or adopt that thing in order to retain their pos- or their position to continue to grow their career, maintain relationships, et cetera. I do see situations where I've seen flustered CISOs that are just frustrated in their roles and aren't really making as best progress as they want to that start investing time and looking at opportunities to maybe find vendors that will help them more than they will help the company per se. Um, they might help the company too, but there's a lot of time at that point being invested into what might help them. What I can say is that in many cases where I've seen this playing out, I've seen it play out with some of the most frustrated leaders. And I think avoiding this from numerous perspectives is, as we're seeing leaders, I guess, hide, I guess is the way to put it, is we see leaders disappear more and more often. That's a sign of a problem, right? As meters, our leaders are not showing up to meetings, they're sending other representatives more and more often, they're not showing up to their team meetings, they're really just not available, they're not there, they're not around, they're not paying as much attention, they're not as involved. It's usually a sign that someone's disconnecting themselves pretty significantly. And it's those situations I've seen in many cases where someone may be investing in tools that are helping them more than they're helping the company because they've almost half given up on helping the company because they've reached this point of frustration. I think for, for yeah. we've got to watch for that. And as CISOs, we've got to watch ourselves. If we're reaching that point, eh, we got to ask ourselves, are we where we should be company-wise? Should we be making a change before we get down that path? But I think that's where I've seen it most and really what we got to look for. So you covered a lot there pretty quickly. And for the listener, the uninitiated, the first piece is important, no matter the condition, but especially amongst leadership. If you are, if, if one of your peers, or maybe a direct report, or maybe the person to which you report is checked out, that's never good in any formula. That's bad all the time. But I think where you're going with this is that um, there are cases that if there's a the checked out or the hidden CISO, you know, maybe they're spending more time on the lecture circuit than they are in the office, I think is where you're going, right? They're yep. at the exit circuit, yeah. And then if you have somebody who's completely disengaged and gone and unavailable, but then flies in and wants to push a new agenda or push something, a new capability. I think it's harder for uh, the team to adopt because they're like, hey, wait a minute, you've been at cocktail hour and we've been back here dealing with the auditors and this this difficult work while you've been having fun. 
And now you have an idea of what you think is best for the mothership when you've been gone. Mm. And that's, that's, so that's the best scenario that I described. Um, the worst is, is there's a relationship made, you're tired of your current or, org and, or, or situation, and you try to crowbar in something before you leave, is what I think you were just saying. Yeah, exactly. And, and all of those scenarios are, are very much ones that I've seen and are, are at the root of a lot of what I had mentioned before. But let's let's make it a little simpler. Let's not because that this the statements there uh, they get pretty dark pretty quickly. What I'm talking more about is just the general analyst, the the mid career analyst. I thought you were going down a path in our earlier chat where rather than having a good strategy on what to fix or what to do next, I took it as we were just getting often distracted by shiny objects mm. and things that are sort of an analyst sort of running toward things that they think might be good for their career, not so much because they're unhappy with their job, but more because they think that's who they should be, maybe technically, or maybe that's the brand they should align with. Like maybe you could offer some advice there more from a coaching perspective of, hey, I want to run. I, I want my staff to be happy and do things that, are, that they think are relevant, but I also need to sort of set a North Star and, and make sure that we're not buying silly things. Yeah. What's your kind of rule there? And I do think, to be fair, everything I just said is a far smaller issue compared to what we're talking about now, right? And this, this is a lot more prevalent. And I think at the end of the day, one of the things that I found most valuable in making sure that our teams are focusing on the right thing is actually two things. We've got to understand, as CISOs, we've got to understand our team members' career objectives. What do they want to accomplish? And if they don't know, to I think part of our role is to try to help them, right? We have an ability, or we are observing what they're what they're doing every day, what they're good at, what they're maybe not as good at, and we're able to potentially suggest things that they should be focusing on, given the opportunity to do those things and truly crystallize those capabilities. But then the second piece to that is we have to be clear on why we're doing what we're doing and why we're asking our team members to do the things we're asking them to do, right? I think a lot of where this plays out is team members don't have context around the, the strategic objectives that have been laid out in front of them. We sometimes spend a lot of time crafting those messages for our boards and executives, but then unfortunately, won't always spend as much time bringing that information back to our teams in a way that makes more sense to them, not the 50,000 foot view perspective, but something that they can actually connect their daily work to. And what I've found has been incredibly successful is giving that context, setting those ultimate boundaries and allowing the team to understand where you're coming from, what you're, how you're thinking about what you're talking about, allows them to truly rise up to the challenge, make the right decisions. If they see solutions, they're more likely to be solutions that align with what you're trying to do and what you've already aligned to in terms of their career objectives. And you can continue to have these more regular discussions that evolve their career, evolve your program in a more meaningful way. And everyone's in lockstep making smarter decisions as opposed to some that may not make as much sense. I think that's helpful. And I think that's a point I, that resonates with me where we will spend more time preparing for someone with a fancy title. In many cases, the person that suffers is the team over which you steward, right? And, and they may not get that vision 
that's typically a product of a larger flaw where that you cover is you're not working with them to help own the strategy associated with that vision. And there's a gap there. So they want to just buy things. I saw, I've seen in my career many times where people would be ready to spend a million dollars on something, but could not simply describe the problem for which they're attempting to solve. And that's a, that's a killer thing. And, and I saw it amongst managers and directors and peers. Not all that common, but I bet 25% of the time I wouldn't get a clean answer. You made a statement to me around building relationships, and it kind of is a capstone a little bit on what we've talked about throughout the entire chat, is you made the comment that many CISOs have come to the point where buying is easier than fighting with the business. And this is related to owning risk and sort of solving you know, fractional problems rather than the entire issue. Why do you think buying is easier than fighting with the business for a CISO or a security team? What, what prompted you to say that? Because it often is, except of course, you, you're not going to make it all the way to the end in terms of managing that risk. But it is a lot easier for us to just buy and implement something because we know how to do that, right? We've already got those relationships with an IT in terms of whichever ones we need to deploy certain capabilities and services. And we do that all the time. The challenge, like I was touching on earlier within a massive enterprise in particular, is if you're going to influence HR or influence finance as to how their business process is going to have to change, that's a lot harder. You know, you're walking into a most likely defensive situation out the gate. They have the, they built their process for a reason. It looks like what it does for a reason. You have to be in a situation where you can not only understand their current process and be highly informed as to what the process looks like, but also understand the problems with that process in terms of the challenges the business is facing, understand the risks associated with the process that from your perspective, be able to relay all of those to the most senior leader within the organization, get buy-in partner on a strategy to then relay those messages down to the teams below them, then you and your team are most likely going to have to distribute that message further through their organization, partner with them on pilots to test or change some of those processes. There will be delays along the way because other business priorities come up. So you're, you're going to be spinning wheels, not making as much progress as you would like to in the period of time you would like to. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's hard right? And it, things are going to go wrong. You may affect the business along the way, and you're going to have to come hat in hand and explain why that happened and how it's not going to happen again. And then work with your team to evolve it, your program such that it doesn't. It takes me a long time to even just say it compared to just talking about implementing a solution. And right. if you're already in a situation where you're, you're struggling politically, or you don't feel you have the support you need, and all of those types of things, it just exacerbates that challenge. But to the point in which we've been talking about today, that is a successful CISO, right? In, in today's market, if you can navigate through everything I just said, that is what's going to allow you to be successful within a large enterprise in particular, not the ability to deploy tools. In fact, as I've watched individuals that can't align with the business, that can't speak to strategy and how they're supporting and protecting that strategy and are only deploying tools even as the business is saying no more tools, that ends up becoming a shorter road within those organizations more often than not than many folks would like. So we have one final question. Uh, it's sort of the capstone question for every show. Pursuant to the name of it, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? 
servant leadership, honestly. I look at a lot of the very successful, or a lot of my successes in more recent years, and a lot of my fulfillment and joy has come out of building really amazing teams, but then enabling those teams to do great things. And there's a lot of challenges we've talked about with being a CISO, particularly within very large organizations. But I would argue that our team can't be blighted by those challenges. We have to establish a culture within a culture that allows our teams to move as quickly as they as they need to, to be able to test certain capabilities and solutions and processes and, solu- and, and ultimate ideas to get to the outcomes we're driving towards. We have to create a culture of innovation. We have to create a culture of trust. We truly need to make sure that our teams are enabled, empowered, that they have the ability to interact with us as if there is no structure and that they can truly come to us at any given moment to better understand strategy, objectives, et cetera. Servant leadership is king. And anyone I see setting up their teams for success in this way is only successful as a result. And if they're not, they're probably just in the wrong place. Because this is how you build not only successful programs, but teams that will follow you through the greatest of challenges and still want to follow you the next. And again, I I can't stress that enough. I think it's one of the greatest principles in leadership that needs to be underlined and has been underlined in recent years in general. But I think in the security space, it's more important than it's ever been. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, Curtis, thank you so much for your time today and, and for sharing all your thoughts. We appreciate it. You bet. I enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.